As I said, we are in Proverbs chapter 16, beginning in verse 23. You know, if you ask a group of believers the question, what is your favorite passage in the book of Proverbs, the answer given by a whole, given by a whole lot of those people is going to be what? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And uh, a key thought in that passage is in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And uh, making straight our paths is what happens in God's work of sanctification in our life. As we are growing to be like Christ, as we are growing in holiness, he is uh, straightening our path. We have wandered and sinned and here and there and so on, and he's straightening our path. And one of the wonderful passages uh, in, in the Word of God that has a real focus on that is the book of Proverbs, straightening our path. And I trust that as we have been going through this, if you have been here for most of the studies, that there are many of our areas of our lives that we have been seeing some straightening going on uh, through the power of God's word. We've seen it having to do with our money. We've seen it having to do with our family, our jobs, and uh, all kinds of, of areas of our lives. By the time we get through Proverbs, there's probably uh, no areas of our life that are not touched on in this book. So tonight we're going to continue uh, looking at these amazing Proverbs. We are in verses 23 to 26. Please stand in honor of God's word as I read <clears throat> Proverbs 16, verse 23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> and as I've mentioned before, the titles of these psalms are adapted from a book called The Wisdom of Proverbs by Bob Beasley. I, I did not... Uh, uh, originate most of these titles. So our first proverb tonight, number one, you'll see on your outline sheet there, is allow your heart to instruct your lips. Now, our first two proverbs that we are looking at tonight deal with what comes out of our mouth. And this is a common subject in proverbs. We've seen it numerous times. In fact, two of the Proverbs that we looked the last time that we met uh, dealt with this also. So it, it's a very important subject, what comes out of our mouth. And our tongue needs to be, as James says in the epistle of James, it needs to be tamed. So in preparation for looking at this in Proverbs, let's turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. The first 12 verses, important teaching in the Bible concerning our tongue. <clears throat> James chapter 3, verse 12. 
James 3, 1, not, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. So James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says yeah, everyone stumbles in this area of the tongue. Uh, so if he's able, uh, or if he does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle not just his tongue, but his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hells, by hell. <clears throat> For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening uh, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The point is now, as a believer, uh, we have a new new tongue. We have we are made a new creation, and um, so. And those times when what comes out of our mouth is not godly, that doesn't fit with a, a mouth that has been uh, transformed by the gospel. So very important teaching about, about the tongue. With that in mind, turn to Proverbs 16.23. He begins in verse 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. Now, when he talks about the, how, the heart of the wise, look in, behind the, or what's be, the verses before this. Uh, in verse 21, where he talked about the wise of heart is called discerning. So the wise of heart there, and then here the heart of the wise. <clears throat> As we've often seen in our studies, our heart is mentioned in Proverbs many, many, many times. But it's not speaking of the organ in our chest. Uh, our heart is the place where our intentions, our motives, our thoughts, our words originate. In other words, it's the mission control, just like NASA has mission control, taking care of all the details of the flight into space. So, so mission control for our tongue is in our heart, and it's mission control for what we do and what we think. Now, we are born with a heart that the Bible calls deceitful, and desperately wicked. 
But here it's talking not about that wicked heart, but the heart of the wise, the heart of, that is, of the person who has been transformed by Christ, who has been born again, who has the new birth. And he or she is a person with a new heart. And that's part of the promise of the new covenant, that he would give us a new heart. So he's talking about the believer here. The heart of the wise, the believer, makes his speech judicious. So now that we're a Christian, um, we're to be concerned about what comes out of our mouth. I, I think I've told you, but it's been quite a while ago, about uh, a guy in high school that when our younger son, Mark, was in high school, they became good friends and, and his, his friend came to salvation. And Mark invited him to church, and I was preaching through Romans, and we got into chapter 3, and he saw his need and came to salvation. Part of the evidence of his change, uh, I, I really, uh, really thought, wow, that's evidence of change. Shortly after he became a Christian, he told Mark, you know, sometimes I slip with my tongue and I say things that a Christian shouldn't say. When you hear me say that, slap me on the cheek. He actually said that. Mark did that a couple of times. But, uh, you know, that was because his heart had been changed and he wanted what came out of his mouth to reflect this new heart that, that uh, he had. So um, the heart of the wise is this person that's been transformed and part of what's been changed is to be our speech. And, of course, in Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said... Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So a person who has the heart of the wise is also making sure that he is filling his mind with the truth of God's word. It's not that there's some kind of void there. Well, okay, I'm supposed to speak the words that God would have me give, but... It's not just some nebulous thing out there. Now that we're a Christian, we are to be filling ourselves with the word of God, and that is going to have, uh, it's going to be coming out and producing its fruit in our lives. But in this case, Solomon says, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. Um, that's the ESV translation. Judicious is a word I don't think we hear very often. We hear other, other words with, just, with the word justice and so on. But judicious, uh, it means showing or doing something with good sense is the idea of speaking words that are judicious. Uh, showing or doing something with good sense. Back in verse 22... Of, of this chapter, the last verse we looked at the last time we studied Proverbs, good sense, so that would be connected with this judiciousness, is a fountain of life to him who has it. Just so a fountain, it's a picture of this fresh water just bubbling out and, and so on. It's a great picture of how our words are to be. So the, the idea of this with judicious words uh, this person doesn't blurt out just whatever comes to his mind, but he weighs things before he just says it. Uh, 
uh, weighing, is this right? Is this what God wants me to say? You remember Peter, as uh, he had been called by Jesus to be a disciple, he had a lot of learning to do. And numerous times in the gospel, he speaks, but he hasn't thought it out. And he blurts it out. And um, that changed as he matured. And after Pentecost, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit and, and so on. So we, need, we all need that kind of change. But he continues in verse 23, makes a speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Notice above it, verse 21. The wise of heart is called discerning the sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. So we've already seen this idea. The part of, of the speech now as we are a believer, that God wants to use us as we are talking with other people that we would give words that would be persuasive words. Not persuasive to follow evil, obviously, but persuasive to follow the way of the Lord and, <laughs> and to please him. And so the wise are able to be God's instrument to convince others of the way that the Lord would have them go. That should be something that we pray about, that our words would do that. And then that's a reminder that harsh and bitter words do the opposite. We should pray that this would be true in our life, having these kind of words. Uh, there's a prayer in Psalm 19, that uh, if you're not familiar with, I would encourage you to, to make it part of your life. Psalm 19:14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a prayer for us daily uh, before the Lord. Then we come to the second of our Proverbs tonight, and that is speak words of sweetness and health. Look at verse 24. Gracious words. Gracious words are kind words, not angry, not bitter. And he says, you know what they're like? Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Now, I have to, I have to say I've never eaten honey from the honeycomb. You know, I go to the store and buy a jar of honey and so on. But I, I'm sure it must be a tremendous sweet treat to actually have that honeycomb to the point where that honey is just dripping out and uh, bringing sweetness. And that's the picture that, that he draws here, a honeycomb so loaded with honey that it is just dripping off of the cells. And the wonderful thing about honey is that it is both sweet and nutritious. I don't know about you, but I like a lot of sweets that are not nutritious. But honey, it's sweet and nutritious. Gracious words are like that. They drip from a heart overflowing with wisdom. So he says, gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul. So he gives Two, two blessings of that. First is its sweetness to the soul. 
and the soul is far more important than the taste buds. And, uh, you know, we, we take, eat honey and so on. Oh, it's, not, it's so good to the, to the uh, taste buds. But Solomon is thinking, you know, there's something better than that. These sweet, gracious words from God that are even better to your soul than honey is tasting to the taste buds. And uh, these are words that are encouraging and uplifting to the soul. That Because uh, he's mentioned the soul, the inner part of us, the part of us that uh, the, the, we also have another uh, aspect of it when we talk about our heart. And uh, these are words that are uplifting to someone else's heart and soul. I, I know you have all had the experience of talking with people that uh, after you talk with them, you just kind of feel like you've been, they've, they've dragged you down. But there's other people that you finish talking to and you just feel uplifted because of the words from God that they have given. And that's what he's exhorting us with our words that we are to do. And these words are, are just nourishing and blessing to the soul, but also, he says, to the health of the body in the next phrase. Now, we had a verse back in chapter 14. I won't turn there, but I'll just quote it. In chapter 14, verse 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. In other words, the heart has an effect on the body, and that, that's kind of the idea that's here. These gracious words will help produce that tranquil heart that was talked about in chapter 14, verse 30. Now, because these words also benefit the body, these words are profitable for every part of a person. They're good for the body. They give, they give energy. They give uplifting. And they give encouragement. And, you know, your body gets kind of worn out, gets tired, and uh, just sometimes just kind of dragging along. And then some encouraging words come, and it's just like it just just has given you a fresh start that you want to keep going. Something about encouraging words. One summer <clears throat> when I was in college, I think the third, third summer of my college years, I, I served at a church out in the desert of California in a place called Imperial as uh, the youth pastor for the summer. It was a wonderful experience, and part of, uh, part of that uh, experience also involved uh, the pastor had asked for a family that uh, could house me for the summer, and there was a wonderful family in the church that volunteered, and uh, Cecil and Esther Huff were the, parent, were the parents, the husband and wife, and they had some teenage kids, and I became part of the family. And uh, Mrs. Huff would make meals, and we're all sitting there as a family, and I genuinely, after all, I had been used to eating cafeteria food for nine months. Now, 
I, from what I hear, college cafeteria food has greatly improved from when I was in college. No one raved about that. So anyway, that's, that's what I'd eaten for nine months. So here are these homemade meals. I, I enjoyed them, and I would compliment Mrs. Huff after the meal. Oh, thank you, that was so good, and so on. And uh, one of the boys, Bobby, by the way, went on to become a state legislator in the Cal state of California. I was just a teenager then. And uh, he said, you know, mom's cooking has gotten better while you've been here. <laughs> and Mrs. Huff said, well, it helps to get a compliment once in a while. So apparently, as far as she was concerned, a word of encouragement just strengthened her to, to put a little extra into that cooking. It's a good reminder about what encouraging words will do. So I have to ask, what kind of words are coming out of your mouth? We need Colossians 4.6. Turn to Colossians 4.6. Colossians 4.6. In Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious. Tie, that's tied in with what we've seen in Proverbs. Seasoned with salt. Um, what we say should be tasty. Uh, and so on to the person. Seasoned with salt. And um, uh, he, he con con continues... Uh, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our talking should be like that. Well, in addition, or, or I, I should, um, well, I, we'll just end it there. Okay, the next proverb, third proverb is, warn yourself and others of self-delusion. That's in verse 25. Now, verse 25 is unique in that the verse appeared earlier in the book of Proverbs verbatim, absolutely exactly like it is here. It's in chapter 14, 12, the same verse. Is that a waste of space to repeat it? Absolutely not. When something is repeated in the word of God, uh, it's a reminder, hey, this is something we should pay attention to. Uh, but why repeat it here? Well, I know that there's gaps between times that we study Proverbs, and it's easy to forget about what we saw at the beginning of chapter 16. But chapter 16 began with a strong emphasis on God's sovereign control of events and sovereign control of all things. That was in verses 9 through 10. Well, then he puts this verse here, um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, perhaps because this verse, uh, which really is about man's attempted independence, provides a needed warning in the chapter that emphasizes God's sovereign control. So he puts this little warning here to remind us uh, we dare not put ourselves in control. The Lord is in sovereign control. Look at verse 25. And verse 25 speaks of non-believers. Verse 25, <clears throat> there is a way that seems right to a man. And that is, because we have a sin nature, 
we don't think right. Um, we don't think right until we're regenerated, become a new creation in Christ. Uh, we, we do what seems right, but boy, it is so often so wrong. I was telling some before we started, I'm reading the autobiography of a, of a man who was born in Gaza, who became a terrorist under Yasser Arafat. That's a name that the older, the older ones, well, maybe not so old either, will remember. Ter a big, big name in terrorism. But anyway, um, he became a Christian, and it's a wonderful story of how he came to salvation. But anyway, reading, reading that by autobiography and seeing the first part of his life as he is involved in terrorism and he's a Muslim and strong believer in, in Islam and so on, if you asked him, he would say, of course this is right. But as this verse says, there is a way that seems right to a man. Every religion is that way. Um, it, uh, it, to the person, it just seems like this is, this is right. But the problem is, the non-believer is seeing it through eyes that have been blinded to the truth. The Bible talks about that in, in several verses. It, John 12.40 and 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, for instance, talk about the eyes of the non-believers being blinded. And uh, you have to, they, they need to know their opinion. Just because it's their opinion, it doesn't make it right. And they are looking through blind eyes. On top of that, Satan will do everything in his power to deceive us. And uh, so the non-believer is under the deception of Satan. You know, most people believe in heaven and hell, but they think personally for them, they're destined to heaven. They, they think that's right. But God says that's as far away from the truth as anything can be. They may choose a path genuinely believing it to be the best one, but despite their, their sincerity, this verse says such a path still ends in death. And so the next part of the verse, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. God's holiness and law is the absolute standard. God does not grade on a curve. And anything going on the path of what this person thinks is right is going to wind up in judgment. By the way, literally, the Hebrew, as Proverbs was originally written in Hebrew, originally, or the literal Hebrew is the ways, plural, of death. So here's this person who's going in this way, the singular way that he thought to be the best way, now opens up into a whole bunch of death traps, is kind of the picture when it's put in its, in its uh, plural. 
And certainly this fits every man-made religion, fits in that category. Um, Jesus amplified that in Matthew. I don't know if you ever thought of a connection with what Jesus said in Matthew, but it's in Matthew chapter 7 kind of amplifies this well-known verse in Proverbs. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Very interesting amplification. You know, there are so many illustrations in the Bible of people who they were absolutely sure their way was right, but it led to the, to the ways of death. Two examples I put in your notes. One is Lot. Remember, he was absolutely convinced when he, when he looked up on the high, he was up on the kind of like a mountain overlooking the, the great uh, uh, Dead Sea Valley and Galilee Valley and so on. And Abraham had said, you pick the land you want, you'll go, and I'll take my herdsmen and we'll go to a different spot. Oh, he thought he had the greatest plan to go to Sodom. Oh, we'll have a good life there and it's going to be glorious. But you know the story. It ended up in the ways of death. And then there's King Saul. He thought he did what was best. God had told him that uh, they had to destroy the, the uh, Amalekites, and particularly the king, Agag, and even all of their animals and um, to, to protect Israel. But Saul said, you know, I've got a better plan. I'm going to spare Agag, and I'm going to spare his animals. Uh, there can be other good uses for them. And uh, you may, you probably know the story. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. God did not take kindly to that. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 22 and 23. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain. Oh. That is the wrong verse. Anyway, uh, sorry about that. But um, God, let it be known that even though Saul had said, you know, I'm going to use these animals for sacrifice. says, God doesn't want sacrifices like that. He wants your heart. And um, it would be better not to sacrifice than to go against what God wants. So Saul, certainly, as this verse said, uh, he had a way that seemed right, but it ended in the ways of death. Well, this verse in Proverbs is an obvious uh, warning to the non-believer, but it's also a warning to believers that we need to be careful about our thinking. That's why Romans 12 and verse 1, after it says to present our bodies to the, be a living sacrifice to the Lord, and verse 2 says, and, and that our minds are to be renewed. They are renewed by taking in the word of God. 
that our thinking would be straightened out. And uh, then there's Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then our fourth proverb is in verse 26, uh, or, or excuse me, verse, um, yeah, verse 26, be blessed in your work. You know, work is part of God's design for our lives. Even before the fall, God gave Adam and Eve work to do. They were to dress the garden, take care of the garden. They didn't have weeds and they didn't have all those things because that came as a result of, of sin, the curse of sin. The curse of sin is not work. The curse of sin is the, the difficulties that come from work as a result of sin. Um, but the biblical work ethic is for a person to work. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul writes the word of God saying, if a man will not work, he shall not eat, would be part of the biblical work ethic. Well, look at verse 26. A worker's appetite works for him. That's kind of a strange thing to be in Proverbs. Uh, when the word workers there, it's a Hebrew word that emphasizes the struggle and the laboriousness of work. In other words, work that is not easy. Part of the curse is that we would work by the sweat of our brow instead of the work being uh, easy like it was before sin. So here's a person who is working hard and his appetite works for him. In other words, he gets hungry. Well, what's the result of that? The next line explains that. His mouth urges him on. Uh, here, of course, the mouth is not used as our organ of speech, but it speaks of our appetite. Our appetite, our hunger for food um, drives us on. Have you ever had a, a job that was very laborious and boring. I had a job like that in high school for several months. The local shopping center in, in the town where I grew up was kind of new, and uh, they were trying to drum up business, and so they promoted what they called their lucky bumper stickers. And uh, people would come and get a bumper sticker advertising the shopping center. And then on there was a number. And once a week or something, they would draw a number. And if your number was drawn, uh, you got gift certificates to the stores and so on. Well, I got the job of being the one who stayed at this little stand waiting for cars to come through and then when they came through, I'd slap the bumper sticker on the back. But it got kind of boring. And there were some long stretches after a while when no cars came and so on. But what kept me working? It was my desire for what I was going to do with my paycheck. Now, my paycheck wasn't paying for my food. I was still a teenager living at home. My parents were providing that. But... Like every teenager, I had these things that I wanted to buy. 
And so that kept me going. And that, that's, that's his, his point on. It motivates him for working. Now, I put in our notes, Scripture has some warnings about work that I think we need to take into consideration. Turn to the next book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, chapter 6 and verse 7. 6, 7. Ecclesiastes, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. That's the problem. Left to itself, although the book of Proverbs says, you know, your hunger, your appetite, that is a good motivation to keep on working. But on the other hand, left to itself, this added, this motivation to satisfy our appetite soon produces discontentment. Turn over to John 6, 67. John 6, 67. In, uh, in John 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000, and then the, the crowd return the next day wanting free food that they didn't have to work for. And um, they wound up leaving. And uh, in, in verse uh, 27 of John chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So yes, the, attitude, the, the appetite motivates us to keep on working. But for the Christian, there's also this warning that we have to realize, well, it's not just material things, but to have the motivation, yes, this is the job God has for me, not just to provide some material things, but that I can please him with it. Maybe there's someone he wants me to share the gospel with at this job and, and all kinds of things that uh, he can be using that for. And, and that's why we need Psalm 37.4 in our life. Psalm 34 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Don't look for the material things to meet the desires of the heart. Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of the heart. Second warning from Scripture is the parable of the fool who built the bigger barns, Luke 12, 15 to 21. I won't take time to read that, but you remember the story Jesus told about this man who turned out to be quite prosperous in his farm. And, and he said, boy, I'm getting such big harvests. I'm going to tear down these barns. I'm going to be building bigger ones so that I can make more money. And that night, his soul was required by the Lord using the terminology in the parable. This night, is, uh, the Lord said, is, I require your soul. And the lesson that Jesus gave was he needed to think of eternity, not just taking care of his material needs. Then there's another warning. 
realize in your work, you're working for Christ first and your earthly boss second. You are to do the will of God from the heart. Turn over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians 6, and verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, or we can apply it to us as employees, workers, obey your earthly masters or your bosses with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or just to watch the clock as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And then he speaks to the masters to live godly in their relationship as well. Well, we are warned in this proverb and in the verses we've seen that although it's God's design that we work, we shouldn't occupy so much of our time with our work that we have no energy for God and serving him and for our family that he has given us and don't have time for worship. And we are also warned in these verses that we will only be satisfied when we are content in the Lord and the study of his word. And God wants us, even in our work, to glorify him. <clears throat> Solomon wants us to be blessed in our work. And to do that, we need to be faithful in doing the job that God has provided us to do with the warnings of Scripture in mind. Well, we'll stop with that proverb, but let me just tie it all together with some conclusions from these. First of all, the first proverb tonight, allow your heart to instruct your lips. If you're a Christian, you have a new heart. It's been transformed by Christ. It's now your responsibility to fill your mind with the wisdom of God. Are you doing that? Are you going to his word every day? to fill your mind with his wisdom. Pray that you would be used of the Lord then, according to that parable, a proverb, to convince others of the way that the Lord would have them to go. Second proverb, speak words of sweetness and health. Are your words the kind spoken of in Colossians 4, 6? Let your speech always be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. Maybe you hear that and you realize, boy, I need to confess to the Lord. I have not been doing that, to come to the Lord in confession of that. And then is there someone that you need to make things right with because of the way you have spoken to them? The third one tonight, warn yourself and others of self-delusion. Are you making decisions based on your thoughts and not the Lord's. This is a real reminder to make our decisions based on God's thoughts, the transformed thinking of Romans 12 too. And then the fourth one, be blessed in your work. Are you discontent 
with your work because you expect your money to give you everything you desire. Remember Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the, the desires of your heart. And then apply Luke 12, 15 to your life. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What changes in your life would the Lord have you make so that you have more energy and time for worshiping him and being involved in, in his word and with your family? Well, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for these Proverbs. And Father, I pray that you would apply them to our hearts and our lives. Father, we get so wrapped up in work and all the things that we have to do. It is so easy to forget that, number one, we are to glorify you. And we pray that that would be true in our lives. And show us those things that we might need to change in order that our life would bring you more glory. Take your word, apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.